Look with me at the word, Titus chapter 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. God's good word, church. I'm excited about what's ahead. The Apostle Paul, who's likely on his fourth missionary journey in Macedonia, is writing around 63 AD, sits to write a personal letter to a beloved young pastor, protege, confidant, named Titus, who is ministering on the island of Crete. We'll see that in verse 5. We'll touch on that next week. Paul's hope is to help prepare and encourage him for the important ministry that he has in front of him to shepherd Christ's church amidst real challenges and opposition. While the letter is written directly to Titus, we gather that Paul intended it to be shared among the brethren there, as he says in his concluding remarks, this last verse of the letter, Titus 3.15, grace be with you all. As we study this letter in detail in the coming months, I I hope that we are blessed to glean insight on what God requires of those who are to lead his people, the church, and why specifically sound doctrine and sound faith are so essential for the call that God has put on us all. For these days he's given us under the sun to serve him, testify of him until he takes us to glory. What a day that will be. Our focus today is on Paul's opening salutation found in what I just read, verse 1 through 4. It's noteworthy and maybe helpful for you in comparing this opening to all of the rest of Paul's, which he has many. This is the longest salutation in all of his pastoral epistles, with the exception of his letter to the Romans. What is interesting in this is that even though it's long by comparison, all that he kind of packs into this opening remark, it it almost goes by too quickly for us to capture the depth, the really good depth of what Paul is getting to in this important opening to his letter. In just a few short verses, Paul unpacks his priority for God, his purpose for writing, the proclamation of the gospel, his affection for the one to whom he's writing, And so, by way of introduction, consider some of these with me this morning. Um, Since we'll spend months in this letter, let's take a moment by way of introduction to really slow to consider who our author is. Some of you might know him well. Some of you might be really helped by this. But see with me the first words of verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Here we're given Paul's name. And two of his most important titles. Before I talk about his titles, let's take a moment to consider who Paul is and where he's from. Paul was born a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin and was given his Hebrew name after Israel's first king, Saul. 
before saved by Jesus, Saul was a committed Pharisee who was trained into a deep understanding of Jewish law under the tutelage of Gamaliel, the elder. He was highly respected authority in his day. Uh, this explains Saul's deep passion and zeal for Jewish tradition and why he was so fiercely anti-Christian and their movement as he saw it to be a dangerous threat, a real threat to his beloved Judaism. So much so that Saul grew to be known as a serious persecutor of Christians, even endorsing many of their deaths, having a hand in that. While on a trip to Damascus, he was, with his purpose of capturing and persecuting Christians, Saul experienced an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, after which he was temporarily blinded. But it's in this interaction, God gives Saul saving faith in Jesus Christ. He's converted and born again. After his conversion, Saul begins to spend his time with his new Christian brothers and is then referred to by his new name, Paul. Paul grows to be a devoted Christian um, with his entire life, lived for Jesus' glory, um, and becomes one of the, if not the most influential pastor of the early church, faithfully spreading the gospel, planting churches all throughout the regions surrounding, and then writing much of what God would ordain to be the New Testament. I could really go on and on about God's amazing work in and through Paul, but I at least wanted to just remind you with some quick recap this morning of his amazing transformation. Uh, God is able, church, to transform the most lost, the most wicked, the most angry, the most anti-Christian person you know. If it's his will, he will have them, and they will be utterly transformed. What an amazing testimony to see Paul receiving God's grace and call on his life. Back to our text. The first way that Paul refers to himself uh, in this Salutation is as a servant of God. Paul, a servant of God. The Greek word Paul uses here that we translate servant in our English Bibles is the Greek word doulos. And its best translation is slave. Servant in some ways could be viewed as maybe a lighter translation of the depth of really what he's intending to say. Paul his love for this title as a slave of God, a slave of Christ, is so much so we see it show up in many of his writings, and we see other prominent New Testament authors using it often. It, many will argue that in that day, the title that these guys preferred to be known as is a slave of Christ and not as Christian. It, 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 was, it meant that much to them, and, and what their meaning in it was very transforming. And I think the thing that makes Paul's embrace of this title so striking is when we consider his former life. I mean, he was a high-ranking, accomplished, prestigious, important man in society. 
and by his own admission, truly consumed in an arrogant pursuit of his own glory and righteousness. Before his conversion, Saul was a true enemy of Christ. In every active way one could be, by how he lived and how he prioritized his life, and then openly denying the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice, speaking threats against the church, and participating in the murder of many Christians. So in light of his pride and his, and his fleshly accomplishment and his vigor, consider with me the true and absolute power of God to humble this man and make him utterly joyful to be named, first and foremost, a slave of God. A privileged slave, a willing and privileged slave of Jesus. And this is a prioritized declaration of himself that Paul's making known that he is a man who's under divine authority, the divine authority of God. And so he's declaring to Titus here in this opening remark, and really even to himself, that he belongs to God. This is something good for us to do too, church. Christian, this is a major and most central characteristic of who we become when saved by God. We must see rightly and not lose sight of the fact that we no longer belong to ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. We now belong to Jesus and we live our life for him in all we do. Truly, when you think about a slave to a master, it is that global when we see it rightly. And what a blessing then it is to instruct our decision-making, our, our longings, to, to, to work through everything we do. Do you, I ask you this morning, really understand, Christian, your new identity in Christ? That we live not to satisfy our desires, our dreams, our ideals, that's the ways of the world. But now we live for his. We want our lives to be directed by him. We want to be faithful to him in all that we say and do. Christian, is this your true conviction? And then carefully to consider this morning your practice. Are you in tune with this to the degree you should be? Meaning, you are quick to see and to think about and to say that you are a joyful slave of Jesus. There's nothing embarrassing about that. As confusing, as crazy as that sounds to lost people who are unsaved, we make no apology because it is the greatest thing in my life to belong to Christ. Your identity now, your joy, your peace, your longings, your, your way you live, your sacrifice, how you want to live, how you want to be known is no longer consumed with what others think of you, 
or make it a name for yourself. No, you live to serve and make much of Jesus. I believe many of us say this, that we belong to Jesus, that we live to serve Jesus. But I want to help you truly consider its reality in your life. As I have often slowed to really try to consider that, I think there's a level by which Paul not just said this, but he really, truly embraced it in every way. And I would ask you to consider that for how your life is lived, especially in times when things get hard. Because the real measure of our faith, you know, as famously people have quoted, the measure of a man is what he does in, in moments of great trial and aversion. When it's really getting turned upside down, where do you come out? How do you go about it? And so there's a lot of life you could probably look back on. Let me just maybe encourage you to, to taste it or consider it, discern it. Just in this most recent season, this most recent season you've been in, consider the commitments that you've made, the conversations you've been in, the things that you've given your time to, the longings that you've worked through, the, the struggles that you have faced. Are you engaging those things with a radical surrender on what you want and with a passionate desire to do it God's way according to God's word? If your answer is yes, then a real test of that might be, is that what others who are mature in the faith and close to you, would they also say that? And if not, then there's a humble opportunity to lean in and really do business with maybe what you're not seeing there. And how you're surrendering and trusting yourself completely to Jesus. Hear me so clearly today, and I really pray, I've been praying that you would, this would go to work in, in the deepest parts of your heart and your mind and your lives more than ever. To be a Christian is to be a slave to God. I've done it elsewhere, and I would quickly remark that no one is free, no man is free as they perceive themselves to be. According to Scripture, you are enslaved one way or another. You're enslaved to sin, and the longings of your flesh, your master, or you're enslaved to Jesus. That's it. And the real test of the crossroads that come proved to that which you belong and or that which you might belong by which you're still really giving yourself to facets of the old self that's got to be really done business with and repented of. For it can't be both ways. Listen to how Paul speaks to this in just a couple other places. In Romans 6.22, But now that you have been set free from sin, praise the Lord, salvation, we're set free from our enslavement to sin. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. So for those of you who might be saying, man, the slavery of Jesus, slavery of God talk, it doesn't seem to add up with all the scripture says about being free. We're free from the enslavement of sin. 
Praise the Lord. And then the great gift we are given is to serve our master, Jesus Christ. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. 2 Corinthians 5, 15, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Praise be to God. May it be so in our lives completely and ongoingly. And I'm excited to see the fruit of that as we process these things and go to work, be accountable. Process uh, Church, uh, Paul also refers to himself here as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of God, a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle means messenger, it means one who is sent, sent with a message. Uh, a, apostle is a messenger, they're a type of ambassador, often speaking for the one whom sent them. So there's some authority in their speaking based on the person who sent them. And Jesus gives an important clarity in John 13, 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. There's a humility in this office, although it comes with some prominent leadership and voice to many people. Um, this is an important thing to understand because of the potency that the messenger has is determined by the authority of the one sending them. Right? A little kid on the street sends a note to you. Yeah, who is this? I don't really know. A prominent government, high-ranking officer, official, President King sends you a message. It just has a whole different pack of authority and potency, right? So that's very dependent on who those people sending the message are. In Paul's case, church, he is sent by God himself. We know this because although he's not one of the 12 disciples, he receives his commission from the Lord Jesus himself. So Paul is an apostle. He meets all the biblical qualifications for that office. It is very important at the outset of our study of Paul's letter to Titus that we see Paul as God's chosen instrument to make the gospel known to both Jew and Gentile. Acts 9 and other places. He wields in this time great authority to do God's work, to launch and expand the church, writing by God's perfect work in and through him what would be much of the New Testament, God's word for us. Wow. Recognize with me the high call that has been put on him and then therefore the sacrifice that comes with being an apostle, comes with being a shepherd of God's people. This is um, a serious change in, in, in this person's life, in their duties, in their uh, responsibilities. A greater demand for the apostles and now for pastoral elders among God's people with greater increased duties, responsibilities, a greater demand for faithfulness, for submission, and for sacrifice. 
And this is something that Paul and I would say all the faithful shepherds who have succeeded him, including myself, now and Lord willing, ongoingly, take most seriously. And despite its cost, seriously also counted a true joy. Not in and of itself necessarily, but because of who it gets to serve and glorify. Because of Paul's devotion and surrender to God's mastery in his life, we have an unwavering, we see in him an unwavering commitment and and passion for God's mission. And I just say, I, I hope that as we see that in him, it's true of us as well. Um, it's true of all who are saved by Christ and commissioned by him to live and to testify the gospel and make disciples to the ends of the earth as we await um, glory with the king. Continuing in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, all of the authority that comes with that in this time and place, he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Here we see our first introduction to what we've kind of declared as the theme for all of our study through this letter of Titus, and that is sound doctrine and sound faith. Two mega themes we see throughout all of this letter that are important to us, important to those to whom, to whom he was writing. We see it right out the gate. Paul first mentions faith. And it's not just faith in anything. It's faith, saving faith in Jesus. Our word of truth catechism says it really well. The question is, what is saving faith? The answer, rather than trusting one's own assumed worth or works or ability, a person repents and believes that Jesus is God, trust in Jesus' sinless life and perfect obedience, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross in his or her place, Jesus rising from the dead to claim salvation and victory for him or her. Saving faith is produced in the elect by God and is always accompanied by progressive sanctification and ongoing repentance from sin. Church, we are saved by faith alone, nothing we bring, in Jesus alone, nothing else. And so that means we who are saved completely trust him. We trust all of our lives and everything that's in it to him. To be saved and for his lordship in our lives and unto eternity. This faith, church, is a gift of God. And it's not only the way that we are saved, uh, but it's the way we make all progress in this life as we walk in faith in what our Lord puts before us. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. What is faith? I mean, that's a big word. That's a known word. It, faith is not blind. It's not a feeling. Hebrews, God's word, defines it well. Hebrews 11.1 one. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Right? We 
those who are of faith in the Lord, we, we hope and we're assured in that hope. We are convicted of what we can't see. It defines everything. The late, great Dutch Reformed theologian Hermann Bavink says it this way. Faith in Christ enables believers, in spite of all the riddles that perplex them, to cling to the conviction that the God who rules the world is the same loving and compassionate Father who in Christ forgave them their sins, accepted them as his children, and will bequeath to them eternal blessedness. Surely we will deep dive into what sound faith looks like, church, throughout the coming weeks and months as we study this letter. But look with me at an added clarity that Paul gives here today, writing to Titus in this opening salutation, purpose of really furthering, deepening, maturing the faith of the elect. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Here's how Paul said a similar point to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Who are the elect? Who are God's elect? And in this point that Scripture is clear to highlight and teach us, we're really introduced to the glorious doctrine of God's unconditional individual election. The Word of Truth Catechism quickly and simply defines the Word of God, uh, the work of God in His election this way. Unconditional individual election is this. Before creation existed... God chose which individual human beings would receive salvation from sin and death. This choice to redeem certain ones is not based on any so-called goodness, will, or work in them. Rather, it is based on the freedom and grace of God in Christ Jesus alone. So we who have died to self and now live to Christ we're saved. We are his chosen people. Outside of that, we don't know who God's elect are, nor should we make it a mission to try to figure out who's on that list. That belongs to him. And it's rightfully his. He's the creator. We're the created. We do begin to see who the elect of God are as faith bears itself, saving faith and ongoing sanctification and faithfulness to prove that that's not superficial faith, but genuine faith in Jesus. Um, but I want you to think, church, for what this means just for you, the, the doctrine of election. It's good news for our soul. You are chosen of God, church. And that has nothing to do with your record, your performance. Some of you might be really struggling lately as you're working through your life and you're seeing where you're really falling on your face. I want to encourage you to meditate more in that moment on the fact that God has chosen you and let it wash over you and propel you to honor and obey him. 
to turn from the, the a woe is me and, and to look at these other things. See yourself the way God see, he chose you. Some people really struggle with the fact of God's election, as Scripture teaches, uh, and want to create an economy in their mind that they feel better about in their sinful reasoning, uh, basically to kind of say that God can't choose and that's not the way a loving God would work, and so they just create a whole other thing. And, and, and I'll be honest to say, I think many of us at different times in our journey might have actually been there until I really understood what Scripture teaches and the beauty of it. And so I pray if that's you, that you would at least lean in more to understand this historic tenet in the church. Um, they'll demand that God has to be hands-off somewhere, some way, but this is not the way God works according to what he's revealed to us in his word. He, he doesn't spin up creation and then turn it loose to see how it's going to turn out. No, the God of this creation is purposeful in everything he does. And he chooses who the players are and how it will go. Because he's the creator and we're the created, he gets to choose when our lives begin, when they end, and how they'll go. He gets to decide whom he will save and be with him forever. And in this, he is good, he is holy, he is perfect. Those things don't change. We want to pull God out of his godness and start to put him in a box that makes sense to us. And in doing that, we strip away these fundamental workings of who God is and how he works. Word of Truth Catechism, question 78. Who will be saved? Simple answer. Only those whom God has chosen for salvation, the elect, will be saved. Again, many people nowadays will say that those who will be saved somehow choose God's gift of salvation. But God's word is clear, and it's undivided in informing us of the reality that it is God who unconditionally chooses which individuals will be saved. And he does this before times, not based on how we've done or how we're doing. Understand that God's choice in his election is unconditional, meaning it's not based on any conditions or performance. God chooses which individuals who will be saved, not based on anything we have done or will do. Please understand that God's choice or election is for individuals, not for families or people groups. It's, it's every name is written in the book of life. Wonderful places where some of this comes to light. Acts 13, 48. The Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing. They began glorifying the word of the Lord. As many as were appointed chosen by God, pointed to eternal life, they believed. That, that work of salvation happened and the church is rejoicing as they saw it happen. Matthew twenty two fourteen, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. What that is speaking of historically is the, the speaking wide and generally of the gospel call. They heard preaching, they heard testimony of the gospel's call to repent and believe in Jesus to, for salvation. They heard with their ears that call. The call is put out there in a general way. 
but few are chosen. Few are of the elect of God chosen by him to be saved. It is only in God's timing. It is only for those whom God has chosen that at his time he makes that general call effectual and perfectly landed on the one whom he will save. Right? I, I like to kind of poke at those who don't see it. Like God doesn't have a 658 batting average. It's perfect. Everyone he set out to save, he saves in his time perfectly. Paul encouraged the believers in Ephesus in this high and mighty place in the opening chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Not according to anything we did or anything else. According to his purpose is why. To the believers in Thessalonica, Paul said, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and believe in the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 uh, Paul exhorted Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saves us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Church, this is a foundational and wonderful way in which God has chosen to save and to work. May we... Put away fleshly, uh, finite reasoning and logic to, to submit ourselves to Holy Scripture, to what he has revealed, to how he works in these things. God does indeed choose whom he will save. And so, with that clarity, Paul is writing to Titus for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Praise God for this. Oh, how we all need to grow in sound faith. I'm excited uh, for what's ahead in the weeks to come as we journey into sound faith further, what it looks like. Um, but sound faith's not his only main focus, also sound doctrine. And we see that in the next part of this, verse 1. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So knowledge here means a clear perception or understanding of the truth. Okay. Specifically, Paul's referring to the truth of the truth that saves, the, the truth of the gospel. When we consider the topic of knowledge, we have to realize the goal is not just learning, gaining information. No, the truth that we come to understand, known as sound doctrine, takes hold of our life and it goes to work in accord with godliness. Paul stresses this to Timothy, that the person who isn't genuinely saved, they're not full of faith, is always learning, gaining information, and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. That's 2 Timothy 3.7. Learning the truth of God when that really happens, it, it takes root in our lives and it produces sanctification. It produces godliness. And so hear it again, Titus 1.1. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords 
with godliness. Godliness is the work of the Holy Spirit, divine work in the redeemed and those who are saved to produce sanctification. That is a big theological word that means a growing holiness, growing purity, growing Christ-likeness. Listen to how Paul speaks to this uh, to church in Colossae, Colossians 1, 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That maturity is godliness, Christ-likeness. People of God must not only be saved, we must be continually sanctified. We saw that even in our reading of the definition of saving faith. It's a byproduct of true saving faith. It produces holiness in us. We will grow. We will mature. So, so don't find a way to have this Christian rhetoric that says, look, I, I, I know, you know I'm saved, but I'm just still going to do sin. No, no, the saved person grows to not do sin, to put sin away, to mature. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. That's the work of the Scriptures. That's the work of our journey together in Christ. Godliness is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Praise the Lord. Growing Christ-likeness. Growing holiness. This was Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So I ask you, Christian, are you growing in your knowledge of the truth, growing in sound doctrine, but not just gaining information? It is producing a growing righteousness, a growing godliness in you. A maturing is happening. This is our high hopes for the focus of the ministry of Disciples Church as we try to receive it from God's Word and do it. We've had many years of reformation from many of the more popular ways that this is done in our day. Praise God for His work in us. Continue to try to go this road to be faithful to Him. Here at Disciples, you are in a community of believers, a people of common faith in Christ under faithful shepherds, who, as Paul will stress to, Timothy, Tim, to Titus later in this very letter, Titus 1.9, shepherds who hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that we would be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So how important is sound doctrine? Right out the gate. Paul is really trying to drive this point home. Sound doctrine leads to sound faith. And what's really neat is you could really flip that too. Sound faith hungers for sound doctrine. Our faith is in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And really Paul turns to point to the fruit of sound faith and sound doctrine in verse 2 and 3. Look with me. He, says, he continues. In hope of eternal life. In hope of eternal life, those who have faith in God based on the truth of God, not something that they've come up with, based on the truth of God, have real and lasting hope of eternal life with God. Real hope, not fleeting, not superstitious, real 
living hope, as Peter would define it. This is a believer's deepest longing. What's your deepest longing, Christian? To be unhindered and face-to-face the holy presence of the Almighty God forever. There is nothing better than that. Nothing. The good news is that that eternal reality is God's promise to us who are saved. The hope that we have of eternal life is really a great encouragement that, for the sake of time, I won't take you down a number of paths, but that produces a real purity in our lives, uh, as we read in 1 John 3. We studied that recently. Um, It's a great encouragement to us, God's people, as we persevere in real suffering. Again, genuine Christians, we, we are... Slaves to our master. We're ready to serve him. We're ready to do whatever he puts before us. We're not people who say, you know what? I reject this thing that you've given me, and I just want a different thing. It's not the way I want it, so I'm going to go to... We don't do that. No, no. I'm, I'm yours. I belong to you. It's all yours. My kids are yours. My kids need to get sick. My kids... Our family needs to have a different kind of gospel testimony. In God's sovereignty, that belongs to him. And as a slave of Christ, we're ready to steward that. Whatever that is. Here, Paul, here, Paul, just heighten this. Philippians 3, 8, for the sake of time, I'll jump to 10 and 11. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You can have it all. Nothing's greater than knowing him. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Jumping to verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Hear what he says in Romans 18, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul's entire life and ministry are grounded in this thinking, in this perception, in in, in this conviction. Hope that he has for eternal life with God. That's grounded in God. This is the gospel's true prize. I mean, that's an important thing to continually realize. Being saved from the penalty of sin, the penalty of eternal suffering, is hugely Essential and a wonderful blessing of the gospel at work in our salvation. But it's not the ultimate prize. What's better? Being delivered unto the joy of eternal life with God forever. That's the prize. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What a blessing. And so I ask you, are you... Are we a people firmly grounded in hope? Hope that's not fixed or connected to our temporary stuff or relationships or status. 
not our hardships and not our victories either. That we'd be careful to, to not say, well, I'm hopeful because this is going or, or not. No, no. In Christ, my hope is linked to God. Holy. And the fact that he has promised, I will be with him forever. There's nothing bigger or better to hope in than that. And so see how he qualifies this, how he helps take us a little further in in, in this. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Scripture, time and time again, informs informs us of this ultimate characteristic of God. The prophet Samuel rightly declares, God does not lie. 1 Samuel 5.29, prophet Balaam proclaimed, God is not man that he should lie. Numbers 23.19, Because God is the source and the measure of all truth, the writer of Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, clearly and rightly says, therefore it is impossible for God to lie. Paul's emphasis that God never lies, that that he is always of the truth, um, that added like clarity here, I, I believe, others with me, that some of that's linked to the direct context of what Titus is facing in Crete. And maybe we can relate. Um, Specifically, Crete was a place dominated by false worship, specifically for Greek gods. Maybe you've heard of this man-made little g-god named Zeus and his made-up companions. These are gods who are on record and unapologetic for lying when it serves them. And what's interesting is the Crete people, the Cretans, were known as being profuse and practiced in lying. (laughs) Uh, Paul's going to say later in this very letter, chapter 1, verse 12, Cretans are always liars. (laughs) We'll come back to that more later. So, a little context helps us to see that while this remark of hoping in eternal life that's grounded in the promises of God, who does not lie, is wonderfully good and rich for us, but especially consider its richness, its potency for a shepherd that's going to be working with a people who are saturated in false worship of false gods who love to lie. Praise the Lord for his perfect Clarity in that, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God's promise for our salvation, our hope to be with him eternally, um, is back to his eternal, before time, plan, choosing, outside of time, just as Paul said in Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's not ages past, that's, that's before time, in eternity past. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before, he gave it when? Before the ages began. All this is pointing us to, and it feels sometimes quick to pass by, but don't miss it. The amazing reality that God's eternally at work, his eternal choosing of us to be saved unto life with him forever in glory, 
is firmly grounded in the fact, now watch this, that he is never caught up in the moment. Because God lives outside of time. You and I, we get caught up in the moment all the time, don't we? He doesn't. God is perfectly reigning outside of time and over all things. Christian, that is a stout endorsement for why our hope of eternal life with him is so great because he perfectly rules over it all and for all time. Not only is God perfect and trustworthy unto eternity because he operates out of time himself and cannot lie, but also because he condescended and entered into time in the incarnation of Jesus. And this is the added endorsement of the gospel truth that we read in this next layer. Look with me. And at the proper time, God's appointed time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So before we get to some of the details of the word being preached, not only did God promise to redeem and take his people unto eternal life, but he fulfilled that promise in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we sit in a pretty sweet time and place to see this. Right? John refers to Jesus as the Word, the Logos, the ministry of God the Son who took on flesh, entered into time to save his people from our sin. Praise God that the gospel has been made fully known to us. Jesus' work has been finished. He's resurrected and returned to the Father's side in glory where he reigns over all things and intercedes on our behalf. Praise the Lord. Now, in addition to the way the Logos in Christ is at work, God's, in God's perfect and proper time, he provides us with his revelation the word, the written word of truth, to know, to study, and in this specific point that he's making here, to preach. God does his mighty and perfect work through the faithful reading and preaching of his word. We see this throughout New Testament. The word is the only seed that gives eternal life. 1 Peter 1, the truth that we all need for edification of the believers is found in his word. 1 Peter 2, all of the truth that we are to teach is found in the word. John 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Church, we, his redeemed, are commissioned to go and spread the gospel and qualified appointed shepherds, pastors, elders are to faithfully preach God's word to the church. This is Paul's next emphasis at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. The commission of the church to testify and the teaching of God's word, the gospel, this is a, a mighty work he's given, a critical role that Paul uniquely see was entrusted with. And now we see Paul in this letter entrusting it to Titus. Listen to how Paul speaks of his commissioning, 1 Thessalonians 2.4, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. 
1 Timothy 1, 10 through 11, sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Paul was entrusted with spreading the gospel to new regions and people groups, to plant churches, to appoint elders. This is a hallmark of his ministry, and it must continue. So he gives it to qualified, readied men like Titus to go forth. I think about that role. Think about the the amazing moment in time when Paul, Titus, and Timothy, and Peter, and others were faithful to preach God's word, faithful to, to die, faithful to suffer, to be put in prison, and the church was expanding. We stand on their shoulders today. See how this letter from Paul to Titus impacts your life now. Here we are today to continue this work. Do, do you see? It is our hour. It is our day. It is our generation's turn. Our time to continue this most essential work of God. To solidify sound faith that's grounded in sound doctrine. So we're, we're committed to be there as a church and, and growingly, hopefully, you and your, and your home and your family and your discipling of your own children and the generations that you're getting to impact. Your participation in the church and therefore those outside, your blood family, but your blood-bought family, the impact you're going to have. We're going to see in this pastoral letter to Titus the practical blessing of what the, the work of the elders and, and the structure of the church is meant to be for us today. This is God's gift to us to confirm and to make sure we're doing this his way. Notice a specific thing here. It's really an emphasis on sound preaching, sound exposition of God's word that brings the elect to saving faith, that builds them up in sound doctrine, producing growing godliness. It's for this mighty and vast impact on God's people that we take preaching here at Disciples really seriously. A lot of the investment of my time is in study and preparation to preach. That, that, that's a big part of how God's called you all and us to be equipped, to be led, to be helped, to mature testify to make disciples the preacher's responsibility according to these things is not to write and preach messages that he wants to share they're of me or or that he thinks is just what the people want to hear no instead our job as qualified preachers shepherds for god's people is to properly interpret explain, and then help apply God's word clearly and, and as completely as possible. This is a high call, a most serious duty. Um, but not only, now watch this, because of its impact, but because of, again, once again, who it's from. Did you notice that in what Paul just said? The proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul is under the command of God and he sees it so clearly that doesn't lose potency in his mind or his heart. 
And I would argue, Christian, it shouldn't with any of us who belong to Christ. We too have been commissioned as Christ's disciples, and now it's our turn. And I pray you never grow tired of the Great Commission. It is what the Lord has given us today to do. And I ask, do you see it clearly? It's not your kingdom. It's not your career. It's not your blood family's legacy. No, it's to do this work. Jesus said, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is revolutionary. It's so helpful for how I'm living my life, why I'm choosing to humbly submit myself to other people, maybe even people younger than me, to be discipled in the faith, why I'm serious about my testimony to the lost world, why I'm serious about knowing God's word rightly, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's my job, that you are to observe, you are to do what you've been commanded. I'm not loving you to let you loose of that. And then are you teaching that to your children? Is that going forth from us? This is who we are. He's with us and he is saving his elect and building his eternal kingdom. Glory to God. Finally, to begin to conclude, Paul turns to address by name the one to whom he's writing. Look with me at verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Who is Titus? Probably part of what you're excited to come and hear this morning. Who is this guy? Right? And the reality is we don't have a lot of insight into Titus's backstory or his conversion specifically uh, many people believe Paul's calling Titus a true child is reference to the fact that God used Paul like he used Paul for Timothy to be the one of direct influence and testimony of the gospel that was kind of with him when he was saved. So there's a real intimate connection in his spiritual birth. Um, but what we do know from Scripture, Scripture interpreting Scripture, not trying to add or conjecture, Paul's first, after Paul's first imprisonment, he took Titus, this is fascinating, with him to Crete, where they ministered together, and before Paul departed, he left Titus to carry on the needed pastoral work that they had begun there. And then we get this letter sent to Titus later, We'll see him specifically refer to him leaving him there next week in verse 5. Based on our reading of Paul's second letter, specifically to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians, it is clearly evident that Titus spent a lot of time with Paul, being discipled by him, ministering together. As Titus is mentioned in that letter by Paul nine times. Titus was truly a beloved brother, a gospel partner. We see a clear reference to this in a place like 2 Corinthians 8.23. As for Titus, Paul says, he's my partner, a fellow worker for your benefit. We know that Titus accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to attend the council in Jerusalem, whereby the issue of Judaizing was finally settled. Galatians 2.1 testifies of this. After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. After 
Just a few verses from there, Galatians 2, 3 through 5. Even Paul commends Titus of being a Gentile convert, someone who was saved by Christ, but he's a Gentile, who had no need to identify himself with religious Judaism by way of circumcision or obedience to the law. That's his point there. Titus uses as an example in that. So this helps us see all this. Titus is well acquainted, therefore, then with the Judaizers and their schemes and tactics. As we'll see later in our study of Titus, specifically in verse 10 and 14, um, he's going to have to deal with it in Crete. So praise God for his preparation for that. In a similar way, it's helpful to see that Titus was well trained in his discipleship by Paul, simply, church, if nothing else, by the ministry they did for a good amount of time with the church in Corinth. Why do I say that was so significant? Because the church in Corinth, as we know, was a mess. They were a disaster. There was, there was so much struggle, so much dealing with stress and frustration and hardship that came with, with shepherding a group of believers who were grossly immature, selfish, and very worldly. And so Titus gets to cut his teeth and be walking some of that out with Paul. Surely an amazing preparation for what's to come. So as we read him say in verse 4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith. Uh, Again, he's not his actual physical son. That's not what he's saying there. He's an apprentice, a disciple, a, a son in the faith of Christ. Paul and others, we saw John do this a lot in the letters we just read from him, often speak of a fatherly-like role over their flock, referring to them as children. That's not to be demeaning. It's to show the uniqueness of that relationship and the authority of the shepherds over the sheep. Um, We see it in many places. 1 Corinthians 4.15, I became your father in Christ through the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12, you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So that's where that fatherly figure uh, talk comes from. It's proper. It's not demeaning. it's, It's sweet. It's good. But let me ask, and, and this is really key as we take this away, what is common in their faith? And it's not just that it's saving faith in Jesus alone. That is essential and true. And we have to have that or there's nothing common in our faith. But it's also a layer of... Um, Shared conviction in the core tenets of Orthodox Christian doctrine, of sound doctrine. And this is important because there will be people that you'll encounter, maybe even you in your own journey, who who claim to believe in Jesus, claim to belong to Jesus, to even worship Jesus. But what they believe about him, their doctrine, and how they belong to him, and how even they honor worship or live for him, is not informed by God's word. That's a major problem. It means what they've come up with is something other. No, it is to be grounded in sound doctrine, or it's something else. And so, brothers, sisters, our faith needs to be common in Christ alone and according to God's word. Mutual, equal, agreed. We all, we all need all of Jesus 
and nothing that we bring to the table. And so when, I want to just make this practical. This is a big takeaway. I pray it was really helpful to you, especially in your relationships with each other. When this is at work and we value our common faith, we get to put away anything that once separated us based on our performance or lack thereof. In other words, we no longer need to judge each other or live in pride that makes me think of myself more than you. That's the old self. Why, why can I do that? How can I do that? Because of our common faith. Because we're saved and we together will enter into eternity based on the same Christ who died and rose for each of us to whom we belong. So Christian, any moment, any season whereby you are tempted to have thoughts that separate you, divide you from your blood-bought family, think not, meditate not on their horizontal performance or lack thereof. Think of the reality of how absolutely common your faith is in Christ together. It is truly our common faith that fuels our forgiveness, our, our patience with each other, our understanding, our love for each other in God's family. This is because when my faith is at work, I'm trusting and I'm abiding in him. I'm looking to Jesus, and so are you. We're looking to him together. And we meet at the foot of the cross where my best performance, your best performance, doesn't mean squat. I'm completely dependent on his performance, on Jesus. We share, therefore, our mutual dependence on Christ. Praise God for his work in this way to unite us and bring us into true kinship, true fellowship, true brotherhood and family bond in Christ. Amen? So as we launch into our study of Paul's letter to Titus, see with me Paul's aim to encourage and strengthen a young pastor whom he discipled and has great confidence in for the high call put before him. Titus loved the Lord. He'd proven to be tested and readied for this formidable challenge that awaited him both in the church and outside. So the mega themes of sound doctrine and sound faith that we're going to see as anchors in this letter are a reminder, they're, they're a commending for Titus, as they are still church for our benefit today. Finally, that's all his salutation, and then he gives his greeting. And this is how we part today. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. What a, what a wonderful impact statement to point us to the triune God who rules and reigns over all things, to point us to his amazing grace and the peace that's brought to his elect for whom he saves and secures for eternity. Titus' high call after reading this would have been to, to administer these glorious truths and benefits of God's grace and peace to the church he would shepherd. And that's what before, is before us as well, church, as we go forward in this study. Will you stand with me? I want to give you a parting word related to grace and truth and peace before we sing and go. Hear this clearly. Soak it up. Grace is the amazing gift of God that brings about our salvation. 
Peace is the wondrous blessing of God for all who believe in him. We have true peace because we understand God's grace. What do I mean by that? A full and right view of the reception of God's grace allows you and I the opportunity to put away our performing, our accomplishing, our proving ourselves. And when I get to put that away, that is a source of major peace in my life, in my heart. No more worry, no more second guessing, no more stressing, resting on the finished work of Jesus on my behalf. Amen? And can I just say, wow, Paul, Paul ain't messing around in the opening of this letter. Why do I say that? Everything we just covered in a lengthy and what I told you would be a long sermon in verse 1 through 4 is his first sentence. And yet consider with me how deep, how profound and powerful these things are to us and to the glory of the Lord. Amen? May that truly be at work in us by his grace and for his glory. Pray with me. Lord, we are just joyful to, to get to have this time uh, to slow down all of our doing, all of our accomplishing, all of our earning and buying and spending and memory making and just to be still and know that you are God, to, to consider your, your revelation, your, your word, your truth, let it wash over us, to let it break through, break through walls that we've erected, excuses we've made, justification, and to, to bring about a real maturing and a sweeter surrender to just who you are and why we rejoice in you, that we would be so joyful to be your slave and so serious about the commission you've put on our lives to wield these things so I pray for our church and those who will join us in the coming weeks and months that we would truly grow in sound doctrine, sound faith. I pray for the unbelieving, that it would be your appointed time to truly bring them to saving faith. Um, what, a, what a glory. You are worthy to be praised. Hear us now as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.